0: Hello, this is Rev. Judith Laxer. Thank you for listening to the podcast of our service entitled The Mysteries of Egypt. Wherever you are tuning in from all over the globe, I am so glad you're here. My wish is that the food for thought offered brings great nourishment for your soul. Our ministry for the Goddess is supported solely by those who, like you, partake of its teachings, and we need your help. If you feel served by listening, please go to our website www.gaiastemple.org click on the support us button and push the donate button to give generously we'd be most grateful thank you and blessed be all right so i want to begin our service today by acknowledging um, and thanking reverend karina for uh, doing such a wonderful job and holding holding down a home here, and the entire board and crew for handling everything so beautifully in my absence last month. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It means the world to me. And of course I'd be remiss today if I didn't mention that it is Easter Sunday. Happy Easter to all of you. And the usual things that I say at our service when Easter and our service meet, which they have a few times in our almost 23-year history, um, which are these. We know the story of Jesus' resurrection is one of many resurrection stories, ancient ones, Osiris included, uh, from cultures all over the world. We also know that these stories emerged from what we witnessed in at this time, the renewal of life, the possible life of winter, the greening of the world, and the returning of nourishment. We also know that the theme of resurrection, taken from nature, is one that became spiritually allegorical because of the beliefs we have formed about the afterlife. And more on that soon. We also know that the word Easter is derived from the word Ostara, our maiden goddess, a Saxon maiden goddess who heralds the season of spring, uh, whose sacred animal was the hare, which is the season of spring, the symbol, the sacred symbol, of the potential of spring and the potential of life is the egg. And so that's how it somehow got translated into the Easter bunny and not an Easter chicken. I just love to say Easter chicken. I don't know why. I just do. (laughs) Anyway, um, and then uh, the other thing is that the word uh, ostara, ostara is also uh, where we derive the word estrogen, which of course has to do with uh, fertility as well. So when all is said and done, This is recognized as a holy day to Christians all over the world. And so, happy Easter to all who celebrate. So, I just got back from this amazing pilgrimage to Egypt, you know? It was astonishing. It was larger than life, and it was mysterious. Those are the three best words that I can use to describe my experience there. And I'm sure I will be integrating and sharing about my experiences there for a long while. So these mysteries, these ancient Egyptian mysteries. Now we all know the big question of our mysteries is how did they build the pyramids? How did they build the pyramids? And we still don't know how they built the pyramids. And uh, you know, we can say, and I've heard people say, well, you know, Egypt had the you know Hebrew slaves, and so the slaves built the pyramids. So our Egyptologist guide while there uh, said two things about that which kind of refuted it. One was that the population wasn't large enough at the time for that to happen. Like when you are there and you see just how big those pyramids are, each block that makes up a part of the pyramid and it's like, that big and is like a ton or two, how did they get them right without cranes, without like all? And even with our modern technology now, they don't know if they could do it. So even if they had thousands and thousands of slave who, slaves who were doing the labor, <laughs> they still couldn't do it. It's a mystery. And it's this crazy thing because I, I wonder, like, why wasn't that mystery passed down like we passed down this information to the next generation i learned how to make a chicken soup for my mother she said throw a parsnip in there like you know, oh that's how we learn and we carry these things down what happened they built the pyramids and then like can't know it's a mystery and when you're there you can feel it like this I'm, I'm here, I'm seeing it. I climbed up into the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, which, by the way, happens like this, because most of it is tunnel. So you're on a tunnel and you're going at an angle like this. My quads were screaming at me for days. Anyway, it's a mystery. We don't know. How did they carve the hieroglyphics? We don't know. The other thing that was really interesting that was pointed out is that early on, at the very beginning, hieroglyphics were convex, meaning they carved everything away from the image. They left the image of the hieroglyph- hieroglyphic and the image of the gods and goddesses. Kind of like the David, you know? Michelangelo had this big thing of mar- big chunk of marble and he just carved away everything that wasn't that magnificent body. That's how the oldest of the hieroglyphics were carved. Then later, they switched and they became convex. Oh, let's just carve it out of the stone. But either way, concave, I'm sorry, concave, concave or convex, how did they do it? We don't know. You know why? It's a mystery. How did they erect those obelisks? So we get to Karnak Temple, which is the largest temple complex in the world and there, uh, so red granite and limestone is, you know, the, the stones there in Egypt, and there is an obelisk at the temple of Karnak that is made from red granite. Now obelisks are carved from one piece of stone. they are not several pieces of stone that are stacked on each other. This thing went up like two or three stories tall. I spent the majority of my time in Egypt like this. Everything is just so big. This thing was huge. And all along the one side was hieroglyphs. So you think, okay, they carved the hieroglyphs while it was still laying down on its side. But then how did they erect it? We don't know. Why don't we know? Because it's a mystery. And our guide told us that that obelisk in particular was 280, bless you, 280 1,000 tons. It is standing there by volition of its own weight. It's not cemented in, it's not anchored in any way, it's just funk that tall. So you're standing there looking at it going, well, I did. You know, there was an earthquake right now. <laughs> wow. Anyway, yeah, it was just extraordinary. And why those mysteries were not passed down to the next generation is another mystery. So everywhere you go, you're seeing things that are blowing your mind that are unexplainable and nobody knows. The sacred sites were immense. They were ancient, some of them going back like 5,000 years before Christ. And for me, in several of them, they were incredibly familiar. Like I've been there before. The Nile River is the only water source in the country of Egypt. It is the only source of water, which means that everybody lives within five or six miles from the Nile on either side because the rest of the country is desert. And the Nile is, as we know, the longest river in the world. It starts in uh, Uganda in Lake Victoria. It's the only river in the northern hemisphere that flows north, It flows north into the Mediterranean, and it goes through 11 countries before it hits Egypt. And I could go off on the water rights and the conflict around water rights, but all to say that if we don't figure this out, and if, uh, it it doesn't bode well for Egypt, let's put it that way, and all of those ancient mysteries. If there's a tsunami that comes into that desert because of the cracking plate tectonics, there goes the whole shoot and match. Uh, So it is a precious, precious river. Uh, and, you know, we hear in the stories, like, oh, the fertile Nile Valley, you know. And then you're there, and you see that green right next to the, the river. And then you look out, and there's, like, mountains of sand. So it really is the fertile Nile Valley. And if that river doesn't flood so that it keeps the land fertile, um, it's dangerous. And many, many people will not survive. So it was a very precious river. It is a very precious river. It was extraordinary to float on that river. I went on a couple of felucca rides, which are these sailboats that men and their sons seem to, uh, to run. It was just beautiful. The other thing that was so cool that we learned about the Nile, and this is where it starts to connect in with the spirituality of the Egyptian people, which is a lot of what, of course, I want to talk about today, is that um, because it runs north, there's the east and the west side of the Nile. And because of their preoccupation with the afterlife, because they understand that the sun rising on the east side is life-affirming in the beginning of day and the days when we were awake and alive and happening, they built all the temples and all of the activity, buildings of activities of everyday life on the east side of the Nile. And everything that had to do with the afterlife, like the pyramids, which are tombs, burials, um, you know, all of like the, the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Queens and all of the pyramids are all on the west side of the Nile. So I loved learning that. And I loved hearing that relationship to the land, that they understood and they, um, you know, that they understood that or that they took that spiritual understanding and created their world around it. So the ancient Egyptians believed that the afterlife was everything. Everything in their lives was geared toward getting them ready for and preparing for the afterlife. They don't believe in reincarnation. They believe that the afterlife is eternal. So I think this might have been in part what gave rise to the whole Judeo-Christian, you know, we're here and then once we go we don't come back. Um, and the hieroglyphs, the hieroglyphics were for the spiritual elite or royalty, which were often one and the same. You know, Egypt was all about the afterlife and language. So as you can imagine, I, I was just in heaven <laughs> I was there. Hieroglyphs, there are three different types of uh, language there. The hieroglyphs, which were for the spiritually elite, the priests, the gods, the goddesses, the priestesses. Then there was demotic, which means denoting or relating to the kind of language used by ordinary people, so popular language or colloquialism. And then coptic, uh, which means belonging to or relating to the part of the Christian church, which uh, began to establish itself in Egypt a little bit later on. But hieroglyphs were the original language. And it was the language that was written to chronicle a person's life. I mean, we were in these temples where every square inch, and like I said, up stories and stories high, was covered in hieroglyphics. They were stories, stories of everyday life, stories of individual life, stories of this god's life, or that goddess's life, or this priest's life, or this priestess's life. And they were used to chronicle these people's lives um, for the future, so we knew what they did and how they lived and what was important to them. And also there was something called the cartouche. I'm wearing a, a cartouche here, which is when you have your name written in hieroglyphics. And I noticed when I put the altar up here today, this is a cartouche also here. Um, These both look similar, but the one that has the line on the bottom, that is a symbol for your name. And your name is written in hieroglyphs there. And we saw these cartouches on the outside of sarcophagus and on these walls as a way for spirit to find you after you die. And so one of the worst things that could happen would be for someone to desecrate your cartouche or you know, chip it off or make it illegible so then spirit won't be able to find you when you die and take you to the afterlife. So this was one of the reasons why doing good deeds here and being a good person and connecting well with your community was important so that when you died, they didn't go find your sarcophagus and desecrate your cartouche and screw you over for the rest of eternity. Toward that end, when Christianity started to make its way into Egypt, the Christian priests came in, and they desiccated, desecrated the sites uh, to, as the Egyptologists told us, avoid paganism. And so you, like when we got into the Temple of Isis, and you, you, you it's huge, right? Everything's huge. You get up onto the courtyard, and like from where we are to the front door, at least, is where the first pylon is. And then there's this, these stories high, carvings of Hathor and Isis and Osiris and Horus. And then you look at Isis and her face was all chipped out. And that's what they did, right? It's, it's the same old colonizing story all over the world. It's been happening forever. Some people come into where something else is already happening They think they know better. They want what they want to be done. And how do they do that? By destroying what already exists. So sad. Now, I personally believe in reincarnation. And if I didn't before, after Egypt, I surely do. Because I, when I got to the Temple of Isis, I felt every hair stand on end. I felt every nerve crackle. It felt familiar. I knew where I was going. I sobbed my way through the whole thing. So, I certainly believe in reincarnation now because I know I've been there before. Now, I am living a life in a way that I hope is good for my soul and for my future. But, you know, we all believe something about the afterlife. We don't have to agree what that is, with, of what that is. But I will say that we don't need the threat of a lousy afterlife to make us be good or do good in the world, right? We can just look at our good deeds, remaining in integrity, offering love and compassion instead of hate and judgment, because it's good for the soul, here and now, and perhaps later too, but here and now. For me, it's more about what I leave behind here rather than what I will meet after I die. I'm not so worried about what I'm going to meet after I die. But if I'm a positive force while I'm here, if I help someone out or make a good difference in someone's life, that's the kind of legacy I want to leave when I leave this life. And at the end of my life, I want to be able to ask myself, did I walk softly on the earth? Was I kind to people? And if I wasn't, did I do my best to try to make amends? Did I clean up after myself in every way that I possibly could? Did I work for the highest good, try to be a forgiving person? Those are the sorts of things. Not because I'm worried about what's going to happen in my afterlife, but because that's what I want to leave behind me when I'm here, because those things just keep rolling, right? Unlike the mysteries about the pyramids, those did not come rolling down the generations. Anyway. But for the ancient Egyptians, their daily life was preoccupied with the afterlife. And I do appreciate, however, although I don't believe exactly as they do, um, that level of spiritual devotion. You know, they have a spiritual idea and they devote their entire lives to it. I think that's a beautiful thing. So there were three sacred sites in particular that touched my heart and soul. At Karnak, as I said, where that huge obelisk was, but also there was a small temple there to the goddess Sekhmet, who is the lion-hearted goddess of fierce compassion, great transformation. She is just gorgeous, and we were lucky enough to have, like, maybe two or three minutes in that temple alone, because Karnak was just crawling with people. I mean, there were... Thousands of people there. So getting, you know, private time in these sacred spaces wasn't easy to do. And we managed to pay off a couple of guards and, and, and get, a couple of, uh, get a couple of minutes in there alone. And whew, I mean the power emanating from that stone was palpable. And it, the, it's the kind of thing where like no matter where you walk, she, she was looking at you, you know, just straight to the heart. The other was the last sacred site that we went to, which was the temple of Hathor, and that was in Dendera. It was also kind of a complex. There were several different buildings, these columns, my God, they just went up to the to the to the sky and um, and they were just magnificent, covered in hieroglyphs, so you could just Feel the energy in the space, and in there there in, and at her temple, there were three different areas that had a particular effect on me. One was the moon temple, and when you walk in and look up, there is a carving on the ceiling of uh, Hathor with her moon in her crown, and so They say, we don't know, but they say that the priestesses would go there and they would lie on the ground and look up at Hathor, who was looking down at them, lying in the same direction as part of that magnificent meditation. There was also an ancestor altar, an ancestor room or chamber in there um, that also had hieroglyphs everywhere. And, um, you know, for me personally, it was. very emotional also I brought a little stone from my own garden and I left it in that um, in that room for my mom who just died less than a year ago so that was quite a a beautiful thing and then they also had a crypt there so there's this one little area where you go straight down this ladder and then have to crawl like on your hands and knees to get underneath through the tunnel. Once you get through there, you stand up, and then there's a room that goes this way, and then this way, and it was a crypt. How they got the sarcophagi down there, I don't know. But every square inch of those walls were covered in hieroglyphs, and it just made me want to know, made me want to read hieroglyphics, so who knows, that might be my next course of study. It was just the most extraordinary thing. Just extraordinary. And then the Temple of Isis, which really kind of starts to hone in on on the magic we're going to be doing here today, which is on Philae, which is an island in the middle of the Nile. So we get on this boat, and we're on the Nile. And then it turns the corner, and as soon as I saw the temple complex, I just started to weep, and I really... Pretty much couldn't stop the whole time I was there. Then you get up on there, and there's this huge courtyard. Everything is just so big. It felt so beautifully familiar to me. It filled me with a sense of longing and a sense of remembrance. It was so interesting also to hear our guide. So our our guide is an Egyptologist, right? And so so much history about this. He called it the dynasties, the old dynasty and the middle dynasty and the young dynasty. Um, But it was interesting also how he talked about Osiris and his consort Isis instead of the other way around, which is how we say it. We say Isis and her consort Osiris. He also had the most charming Arabic accent, uh, so he would say things like Karnak Temple is the largest temple complex in the entire world. you know, you, first you go to your closet and you put on your clothes, and then you go out into the world. Anyway, he was just charming. Uh, along the way, because of the majority of what you learn is still from the patriarchal dynasties, you know, you have to look a little deeper and look a little harder to find where was that little side temple, you know, like the, like the little Mary conclaves they have in churches you know there's always a little spot off there for the divine feminine and in uh, Hathor's temple I believe um, the guide took us over to this one spot and you could see the top of a column and so even that ancient temple was built on top of ancient temples and when you're there and you just think about how far back it goes It just, it's just extraordinary and that it meant so much to the people to build these temples because that's how deeply connected to their spirituality they are. It wasn't just like a weekend workshop to learn about their chakras, you know, it was really something. Anyway, so meeting Isis at her temple in Egypt was one of the things that I know I will never forget. There she was, carved into so many walls, she who is known as the oldest of the old, the great mother slash lover goddess whose devotional love remembers, not just her consort Osiris, as Reverend Karina shared with us last month, but all of us, all of our souls are remembered in her power and beauty, and most especially, her love. So now I'm gonna hand over the reins to Yesha, uh, who's gonna lead us in a ritual to Isis? I'm gonna sit down there too so I can be reading along with everyone else.
1: Thank you so much for sharing about your pilgrimage, and it's really making me so excited because I'm going in September, and so I'm gonna get to see some of these things that you described. So, the goddess Isis originates as um, the rising of the Sirius star, and she was known under the name Soptet in that form. And then later on, she becomes the throne of the pharaoh. She is the goddess who blesses and protects the throne where the pharaoh sits and from which he rules. Now, this image of Isis as the throne isn't so much um, putting her in a servile position to Osiris, rather her representation in the throne provides a ground of being. So Osiris can't exist without Isis. She is the ground of being from which he arises and into which he will again be received. Just the same way we see in later iconography of the Virgin Mary sitting enthroned as the ground of being upon which Jesus comes into the world, relevant to today in the Christian tradition. Without the mother there is no child. And so, as the lover consort and mother, she is both the ground of being that allows and births and sustains the consort into the world, and she is also that which uplifts and supports the consort in the world, and she is also that which receives the consort. And that's a really important element for us because when we in goddess devotion are thinking about like for example this world we belong here to Gaia's temple or Yea, as they'd say in Greece Gaia is our ground of being so this is the platform that supports and sustains us in this world to be here, we're allowed to be here as a result of her generosity. I was initiated and ordained to the goddess Isis, or Aset, in 2014 at the Temple of Isis in Geyserville, California, which is still there, and um, when I went and joined that temple, I dedicated myself to Isis in her form as goddess of 10,000 names. So all of the Egyptian goddesses have multiple different epithets in their praise poetry and their prayers. And those hieroglyphs you're describing illustrate their different manifestations. So as the lady of the sycamores, or the lady, the mistress of the house, or the lady of numbers, or the lady of music, These epithets describe who the goddess is in her various activities. And Isis of 10,000 names is the result of Isis, as the throne of the pharaoh, ultimately takes over rulership of the Nile. And so does Osiris take over rulership of the Nile because the Nile wells up from underground Osiris rising. And Isis was the barge that would carry the body of the deceased pharaoh in state along the Nile so that everybody who was living along the shores would be able to come out and pay tribute to their dead pharaoh. As Isis becomes the barge that carries the body of the pharaoh receiving him back as the ground of being, into the world, she begins to take on a more mobile characteristic. No longer the seat, the throne, the instance in situ, but a moving throne. And from here, she begins to make herself known in other political spheres. So when the Greeks came and took over Egypt and were ruling from within Egypt, they utilized the worship of Isis through Cleopatra to make a greater connection between Greek culture and Egyptian culture. And one of the ways in which they did that was they began to append the name Isis to the names of Greek goddesses. So now, for those people who were working in, in that liminal space that was both Greek and Egyptian, they're now worshipping Isis Aphrodite, Isis Demeter, Isis Hecate. Then, further, Isis begins to gain popularity in other areas. So then into ancient Anatolia, Isis Kibele, and then up into what we now call Britain, what we now call France. Isis made herself known. She is the ultimate bootstrapping goddess. She brings herself where she wants to be, and she is wholly herself everywhere she goes, and she seamlessly blends with everything she finds, and thereby she becomes Isis. Of 10,000 names so I want us all to today experience the nature of Isis that each of us already carries within us and so what we're going to do if I can um, have this writing here and I'm just gonna bring it up here so that I can see it a little more closely okay We're going to recite this prayer first in Egyptian and then in English. So it's okay if you see any word here that you don't feel super comfortable with. They're actually pretty much pronounced as they're written, and I'll lead us in it. So take a deep breath and looking at that prayer on the left in the Egyptian... Nehes, nehes, nehes. Nehes em hotep, nehes em neferu. Nebet hotepet, weben em hotep, weben neferu. Nuchert an ankh, nefer em pet, pet em hotep. Tu em hotep. Nuchert sat nut sat get, merit osar. Nuchert asherenu Anech brak, anech brak, tu a'atu, tu a'atu, nebet, aset. And in English, awake, 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 awake in peace, Lady of Peace. Rise now in peace, rise now in beauty, Goddess of Life. Beautiful in heaven, heaven is in peace. Earth is in peace, O goddess, daughter of Newt, daughter of Geb, beloved of Osiris, mother of Horus, goddess rich in names. All praise to you, all praise to you. I adore you, I adore you, Lady Isis. And we call you Isis of 10,000 names here into this shrine And our next slide. We can just move on to the next slide. Uh, There we go. So, we're going to actually call the presence of Isis into this particular altar, where this particular altar will serve as a portal for Isis so that she can come and awaken in each of us and then we're going to after we call her into the shrine through the fire through the purification of the shrine through the waters which will be on the next slide in a moment then everyone here is going to have an opportunity to come up and light one of the candles from this basket from the central flame of Isis and dip it into waters of the Nile to extinguish it. And then you're gonna take that candle home so that on your own time, if you'd like to meditate with Isis and invoke the presence that she already has within you into this world, you can do so. So from when we begin this, until then we start lining up. I don't wanna do a lot more explaining. I want us to just really deepen in and experience the ritual. So in as soon as we're done with the ritual broom invocation, we'll move on to the next slide and I'll say so. But together, let's go ahead and read aloud the invocation of Isis first into the flame as I light the candle. within this fire, Isis is consecrated, the temple is consecrated, the temple is consecrated, I am consecrated, I am consecrated with the fire of Isis, I am consecrated with the flame of the goddess.
2: Ancient Mother Goodness <laughs> ancient mother i hear your laughter ancient mother i taste your tears ancient mother Ancient Mother,
0: I
3: hear your voice, Ancient Mother, I hear your laughter,
1: Ancient
2: Mother, I taste your tea.
1: moment to just feel the presence of the great goddess of 10,000 names. She already lives within you. She's in your blood. She's in your DNA. She's in your ancestors because we know that we all emerged from mitochondrial Eve, that we all emerged from a common root And that common root, that great mother of humanity who made her way in this world such that her DNA was passed on to all of us, she is related to Isis. She may as well be Isis for us. She is our ground of being. So you already have it. It's encoded. It's not separate from you. And although we should and want to go across the world to see the exciting things, it's also right here already. And so let's hold this prayer together of gratitude for ISIS. This is um, a classic prayer that I adapted from Isidorus, a devotee of ISIS, and where we Release her from this portal so that she doesn't feel like she has to stay in this building forever. But we take her with us when we go. You have come from the waters, O Isis. You have come through the fires, O Isis. You have come to the temple, O Isis. And you have entered my body as golden light. You have purified heaven, O Isis. You have purified earth, O Isis, and you have purified the expanse of space and time. O wealth giver, queen of the gods, lady omnipotent, Agatha Tuke, greatly renowned Isis, Dea, discoverer of all life, manifold miracles are yours. You bring livelihood to humanity and morality to all. You teach that justice will, in some measure, prevail. You give skills that life might be comfortable, and you discovered the blossoms that produce edible vegetation. Because of you, heaven and the whole earth have their being. In the gusts of the winds and the sun with its sweet light, By your power the channels of Nile are filled, every one at the harvest season, and its most turbulent water is poured on the whole land, that produce may be unfailing. All mortals who live on the boundless earth, Egyptians, Thracians, Greeks, and barbarians, express your fair name, a name greatly honored among all, but each speaks in her own language, in her own land. The Syrians call you Astarte, Artemis, Nanaya. The Lycian tribes call you Leto, the lady. The Thracians name you as mother of the gods, and the Greeks call you Hera of the great throne, Aphrodite, Hestia the goodly, Freya, and Demeter. But the Egyptians call you Theus, because they know that you, being one, are all other goddesses invoked on earth. Mighty one, I shall not cease to sing of your great power, deathless savior, many named mightiest Isis, saving from war, cities, and all their citizens, human beings, possessions, and children as many as are bound fast in prison in the power of death, as many as are in pain through long, anguished, sleepless nights, all who are wanderers in a foreign land, and as many as sail on the great sea in winter when all may be destroyed and ships wrecked and sunk, all these are saved if they pray that you be present to help. Hear our prayers, O one whose name has great power. Prove yourself merciful to us. Grant us our petitions and free us from all distress. In your name, Isis, may all be blessed and well. Ancient words for modern times. All of it still applies. There's only a little shard of distance between us and the ancient world, really, of time. Because even ancient Egypt had ancient Egyptian archaeologists who were studying it. Pillars built on top of pillars, temples built on top of temples, civilizations built on top of civilizations. And yes, It's the story of conquering and colonization, but it is also the story of the eternal nature of human presence, which we have given to ourselves, and which we could take from ourselves through our folly. But fortunately, in these times, we have things to help us remember. And we wanted to end this invocation of Isis on a a cheerful note, on a note that we can all kind of maybe relate to through music. And maybe you've heard of one of the modern day manifestations of ISIS, the great and powerful Chaka Khan. Anybody know who that is? Raise your hand if you've heard of Chaka Khan. So we're going to sing one of Chaka Khan's songs, and There's a part at the end which, I mean, I think everybody knows, and I certainly hope you'll join in on, so let's go ahead and get into it.
3: Anything you want done, baby, I'll do it naturally. I'm every woman, it's all in me. I can read your thoughts right now, everyone from A to Z. With secrets you can't tell Mix a special brew Put fire inside of you But anytime you feel danger or fear Instantly I will appear Cause I'm every woman It's all in me Anything you want done baby I'll do it naturally Whoa, 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 I can sense your needs like rain on two seeds. I can make a rhyme of confusion in your mind when it comes to some good old fashioned love. I got it, I got it, I got it, got it, got it, got it. I'm everyone but it's all in Anything you want done, baby, she'll do it naturally. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm every woman, it's all in me. I can read your thoughts right now, everyone from A to Z. You just ask me
2: No song we've ever done in Gaius <laughs>
0: Temple. Thank you, Yesha, that was beautiful, beautiful ritual. Thank you, thank you so much. So, my friends, on the wheel of the year, Beltane is fast approaching, the time when we honor the Earth's fertility and flowering, the time when we honor the lovers of the Earth and all lovers, and the life that lovers bring into being. And as the season matures from late spring into early summer, May Isis bless us with strong loving hearts, and may we shine her light through ourselves and illuminate the world. May our love be as bright and steady as hers, and may we bring the beauty and then revel in it. May we share a common protective love of the earth and for one another, and may that kind of love be so strong that it vanquishes all fear, reaches into every shadowed corner, and transforms all that it reaches. May it reach you and yours. And may you be blessed by her reach. Blessed be. be. So this is where we open